0: Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of The Reading Cure. In this episode, we'll be discussing the book Solitude by Anthony Storr. Welcome to The Reading Cure, your monthly dose of bibliotherapy. My name is Dr. Stephen Davis and my co-host is Dr. Alexander Fox. Now the focus of this week's episode is the prolific writer, psychotherapist and public intellectual Anthony Storr, who was born in London in 1920. Renowned for both his wisdom and compassion, Storr published over a dozen books between 1960 and his death in 2001, having previously established a successful and multifaceted career as both a consultant psychiatrist in various hospitals, as well as a practicing psychoanalyst, having trained under Jung's friend and colleague E.A. Bennett in 1951. Anthony was a late addition to the Storr family, with his mother Catherine, aged 44, and his father Vernon, a 51-year-old subdean of Westminster Abbey at the time of Anthony's birth. His childhood was blighted by physical illness, loneliness and depression, the latter two in good part due to being sent to a strict boarding school from the age of eight, at which he was both bullied and socially isolated for periods of time, Storr found solace from the misery of his school life in music, playing the viola, piano and singing in the choir, and harbouring early ambitions for a career as a professional musician. However, lacking the necessary aptitude for this, Storr would later gravitate towards psychiatry under the influence of his Cambridge tutor and eventual lifelong friend C.P. Snow. Storr was highly unusual in bridging the gulf between the often divergent specialisms of psychiatry and psychoanalysis and attested that his professional and later literary endeavours were always fueled by a desire to solve some of the deepest puzzles of human nature. His perspective was always original. He resisted being pigeonholed into specific schools of thought within psychotherapy and was once quoted as saying, I want to show that the dividing lines between sanity and mental illness have been drawn in the wrong place. The sane are madder than we think, and the mad are saner. Anthony Storr's personal experiences of suffering and solitude, as well as his creative talents and in-depth knowledge of literature and classical music, all gave him ample material for his diverse range of literary output. His books are renowned for being deep yet accessible, and often explore both the darker sides of the human psyche, as well as possibilities for finding meaning and transcendence in creativity. Some of his best-known works include The Dynamics of Creation, The Art of Psychotherapy, Music and the Mind, and the focus of this episode, Solitude, subtitled A Return to the Self, published in 1988. In this latter work, Storr makes a compelling case for the at times underappreciated potential of solitude in allowing people to find meaning, mental well-being and creative fulfilment in life. He recounts numerous fascinating case studies ranging from Kafka to Beethoven and Dostoevsky to Beatrix Potter and in all cases highlights ways in which solitude was integral to their personal equilibrium and or creative success. Now before we begin our discussion of this superb gem of a book, I just want to remind you that we're on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook if you'd like to follow us on social media and we also have a Patreon page if you'd be interested in supporting the podcast there. Links to all of these are on our website, thereadingcure.com and you can also email us if you'd like to give us any feedback on the show. Uh, You can reach us at thereadingcurepodcast at gmail.com and would be interested to hear your thoughts if you want to get in touch with us there but now here is our conversation on Solitude by Anthony Starr Okay, so first question tonight then Alec. So Storr's primary argument in this book is that the field of psychotherapy often overemphasizes the value of relationships to the detriment of interests that are pursued alone. And that at times this can almost lead to a pathologizing of people who are single and or people who like to spend significant amounts of time alone. So do you think he's right about this? And what do you see as the main benefits of solitude?
1: Yeah, I mean, for for me, I think that when Storr was writing that book, you know, psychoanalysis was the dominant paradigm in therapy. And he does refer quite a lot to object relations psychoanalysis uh, as being the main perpetrator of this belief that relationships were the sole path to happiness. I'm not so sure that modern therapy, or at least counselling, is as dominated by that sort of um, theoretical model. So, you know, person-centered therapists, I don't think they would emphasize relationships to that extent, uh, mainly because they believe in individuality. So if the, the client was, say, particularly introverted, I don't think that they would feel that they had to be more gregarious necessarily or... That meaning and happiness would have to be found solely through relationships. So I, I'm I'm not saying that Storr didn't have a point there about therapy, but maybe because there, there's a a wider range of therapies now. It's it's less characteristic of therapy as a whole. I mean, yeah. say pluralistic therapy, you know, there's this notion of cultural resources um, as being a key part of uh you know emotional health, uh, emotional well-being. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're shared activities. It could be things like going hill walking alone or whatever. That could be seen as a as a a cultural resource, a way of uh, keeping oneself happy and fending off things like anxiety and depression. And I don't think a pluralistic therapist would say that these were inferior pursuits because they were done in solitude no sure that makes sense but yeah the the second part about the main benefits of uh, solitude I think that you know for me what seems to be the main benefit is um, is you know finding and sustaining your authentic self yes Uh, so I mean it's it's clear that the more agreeable you are as a person, the more that you will tend to go with the flow when you're in a group, or even when you're hanging out just with one person. That you 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 know you're watching carefully how they're reacting, and this is shaping then your responses and what you think you would like to do. Yeah, and and that solitude is a, is a chance to step back from that, and uh, you know. Reconnect with your authentic self more, and also to work out, you know, how, whether how you've been behaving when you're around other people is how you want to be. Something that you can forget in the moment when you're socializing. So, I think that you know, solitude is an opportunity to reconnect with that authentic self. Not to say that socializing is total inauth- inauthenticity. in uh, authenticity. It's not like a dichotomy. But I think that uh it gives us that opportunity and it also gives a real opportunity for self-reflection too, which is which is harder to do uh in company. I quite agree. Yeah, I mean I think um I, I
0: agree with what you said there. Really I think I mean it's a good point in terms of you know, the, the therapy world has moved on. Um I think in in terms of you know the argument that Starr was really feeling he needed to make at that time. I think you're right. Probably a lot of uh, modern therapies wouldn't particularly um object to the fact that yeah there's a, you know particularly for more introverted people absolutely um pursuits that have a kind of solitude element to them could be healthy um i guess you know just i suppose i could just summarize a few of the 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 benefits that store kind of puts forward in this yes. book you know for of, of solitude i mean he highlights Things like rescuers. I mean, you you obviously alluded there to yeah maybe people's you know stepping back from company a little bit and kind of recharging. Um, yeah. He highlights more sublime or even religious experiences, mm-hmm. you know. And obviously, mm-hmm. he's kind of critiquing Freud's view. You know, he's maybe more on the in the, the the William James camp there about the idea of. I think I think Freud was skeptical about more. You know these sublime experiences, he maybe saw it as more of a kind of infantile regression, yes. Whereas, obviously, for somebody like James and and others, you know, that um, you know, these are things these sublime mm. experiences, and mm. perhaps in solitude, you know, actually have a, a you know, a legitimate part to a really meaningful life, and that there's it's not really anything yes. about regression, so you know, there's that, and yeah, I mean, he, there was an interesting example he talks about. Um, bereavement at one point, you know, mm. and, he, and he contrasts the more British, you know, stereotypically British stoical attitude. You know, the idea. I think he mm. mentioned, you know, the idea that somebody has had a bereavement and then is back at work the next day and are not showing any mm. emotion about it, and that this would be seen as could be seen as real strength. You know, versus um, mm. he talks about. Ru- rural Greece you know people your widows mm. there having you know a really really protracted period of mourning mm. and withdrawal. Mm. And, and again it's two extremes but I think you know that you know there probably is something to the idea that things like bereavement really severe um emotional uh, yeah. issues that you know working through this to some extent in solitude there could be part that could be part of
1: the part of the yeah the, absolutely you know part of it for yeah people. I mean well grief is a uh is a paradigm case of a, a rupture in the, the everyday fabric of your life. Yes. Uh, and so when something like that happens, it could be grief or it could be a breakup or some kind of thing that's happened in adversity that's impacted that everyday life that you've been leading, that solitude can be useful in 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 the uh, uh, as a means to reflect on that to process as we say nowadays these emotions whether it's grief or anything else and hopefully help us to re-enter that world again and feel that uh you know we've recuperated and we've learned from it
0: well well exactly i mean you you know obviously as a as a therapist you'll maybe um have a, have a view on this one but i thought it was interesting how store made the claim that what he called sense making or pattern forming mm, in other yeah. words The thinking through the consequences he says are equally relevant to recovering from neurotic illness as a therapeutic relationship Um, and i thought that's an interesting point you know actually that sense making which doesn't need solitude obviously but that would seem to be surely a part of it a part of it or doesn't need exclusively Uh, solitude it probably you know would would benefit from some solo reflecting i would
1: have thought um uh, yeah, well, I mean, as as you know, there's a chapter on the need for coherence, which is what you were referring to with pattern-making or yeah. sense-making. And I think it's generally true that when there is a, the introduction of a certain incoherence into your life, that that is what prompts reflection. Yep, And that it is not easy to do that around other people, unless it's somebody like a therapist, say, or a, or a very attentive and willing friend. Yes. But in general, it's, it's something that people have to do more on their own, as much as they can anyway. Obviously, people have different abilities and skill levels in doing that. Yeah. But um, obviously, the most clear example of a, a you know, an incoherence in one's life is when you've suffered a trauma. which is like what Raymond Berger calls the unthinkable has happened. And you've got to then find a way of recalibrating your world for that trauma to make sense. Now, people will do that in therapy, and they probably have to also do some reflecting in solitude too. Yes. So, I mean, yeah, if, if you're someone that is particularly intellectually or artistically inclined and... Another way of putting that is that you're someone that is sensitive to incoherences um, and that you suffer more of these ruptures, if that's the right way of putting it, than other people. And therefore you're prompted to go off and reflect on those things and find a new form of integration of the self
0: i i completely agree i mean there there was a good quote actually i wrote down on that on that uh point actually from star he says human beings are human beings easily become alienated from their own deepest needs and feelings learning thinking innovation and maintaining contact with one's own inner world are all facilitated by solitude and i think um you know whether it be as you suggested recovering from a trauma or whatever it may be just kind of reintegrating yeah. the self yeah i mean i mean again obviously if you're in company you know on a kind of practical level you are having to think about accommodating other people are you getting on with them and so on so yeah they obviously a space where you don't have to do that surely if you're going to really be thinking deeply and processing what's going on yeah. it's kind of hard really to see how you could do that without solitude at least at least uh, some well, of the time, yeah, you know, I mean... It,
1: yeah, well, I mean, maybe maybe we could make a good case for solitude by looking at its opposite. I mean, I don't know if our listeners are acquainted with Sartre's play, No Exit, <laughs> but basically it's about them in this hotel room, if I can recall correctly, which is like a kind of purgatory where they can't leave... And they have no solitude, and basically they're subjected to each other's understandings of the other. Okay. And yep. they're trying to mould each other to their perception of the person, which is what Sartre thought was hellish. It has that famous uh, quote: "Hell is other people." Yeah. Now, what I think we're talking about is not socialising per se, but how hellish it might be to to not be able to move away. And reconnect with oneself if you were actually stuck in a room with four other people say for eternity, and you were stuck with their perceptions of you, and uh, that's a kind of bondage in a way, and you yeah. know that that you know I'm not saying that people are in that stark situation in general, but I'm sure people have felt um you know constrained heavily at times when they've been around people too much and they felt they've lost touch with themselves. So, yeah, I think the need for solitude is kind of highlighted by Sartre's play because it's the opposite scenario or existential situation. It's a great example.
0: I think you're right. I mean, it's, I mean, for me, as a more introverted person, that immediately, you know, this this point you're making about this, you know, in really protracted company, that maybe sense of starting to lose your sense of self a little bit. And, it, you know, that, that hellish kind of vision that Sartre's depicted there certainly does resonate. And I would imagine that everybody, to some extent, even the more extroverted, would still need that little bit of time to recharge and reset themselves just in order to keep keep that feeling really of, of integration uh, yes. I, I would, yeah i would yeah maybe. yeah i mean
1: i i think so although we have to be aware of the the, the diversity of how people can be but yes i think that um it would be rare for a extrovert not to need any solitude because i mean you know as as store makes clear it is eloquent and humane book um we you know part of her being is not defined solely by socializing. And that would apply to even extroverts, even if it's maybe not as central to them. Yes. I think of course that you know while the Sartre situation highlights how awful it is to not have any solitude. Mm-hmm. I think Storr also highlights that uh, you know that there's such a thing as enforced solitude that there's a thing called, you know, reclusiveness. Um, and we'll have to bear in mind that, um, that in certain company, we do find ourselves too. So, I mean, certain company can be a, a, a route to authenticity too. Oh, I and mean, that's what we usually mean by friends. Yes. But I mean, but I think that, you know, um, the more that we reflect on that, the more we're aware... That um, even with our friends, there may be times where we feel that, oh, but, you know, I'm not actually believing this anymore. Or maybe they're misrecognizing me or maybe I've, um, you know, haven't made myself clear. And so you have to go away and reflect on that in solitude. And I think that, you know, good friendships are um, sustained. And they grow through solitude in part.
0: Definitely. I mean, I, and I think that's an interesting point you know you make about the fact that story he gets into you know enforced solitude you know good and bad solitude and so on and i think we, we can we'll probably come to that in the next question i was just thinking as well i wonder obviously as we've as we've discussed you know there isn't really an a, a particularly an argument and in in t- at least in terms of the field of psychotherapy so it would seem in terms about you know the value of solitude to some people i wondered from a kind of wider cultural point I I was I was reminded reading this book a little bit of the the book by Susan Cain called Quiet you know the Mm, power of introverts which Mm. she I mean this is that's really only about 10 years old uh, Cain's book and she talks about a western cultural bias towards it towards Mm. extroversion and there was a nice quote from it she says introversion along with its cousins sensitivity seriousness and shyness is now a second class personality trait somewhere between a disappointment and a pathology and she, you know, she's really arguing that, yeah, maybe, maybe there's a kind of implicit devaluing culturally of people who like to spend time alone. Do, do you do you recognise that, or do you? Think, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, I think I think so, and I think this was I, I was actually going to mention this regarding Storr's book that if we if we look at how his account applies to modern therapy, we might um, end up being overly critical of what he says because I think his point is applies more widely. Yeah. As as you say with the Susan Cain book. I mean, you, you know that um one of the main characterizations of people that were introverts was uh, loners. Mm, you know, the yep. sort of American term I think originally. Yep. And America's quite an extrovert culture as she talks about. And yeah, you, yeah. you know, so so you know this idea of loner, you know that that solitude is being pathologized, really, and that people should want to be, um, you know, socializing a lot, want to spotlight themselves, and not really want to be on their own much at all. Yes, and I think that you know that is the fundamental point of Storr's book, which is that, um, which is that you know. It's not just that there are introverts that want to have their solitude and that that's important. He was also arguing, I think, uh, a wider point, which is that, you know, to be fully human, uh, there should be solitude as part of one's life, part of one's regime, as it were. Uh, I think he was applying it even to extroverts to some extent, because as he was saying, we're not defined solely by our social relations, we also have, as he says, impersonal interests, uh, which is what Viktor Frankl might put as self-transcending interests, you know, like uh, interest in art, music, philosophy, (laughs) you know, these are more impersonal interests definitely i mean without
0: doubt i think yeah you've summarized it very well there alec and it's it's interesting that um as you said i mean yeah he's, he's talking about something that is relevant to all human beings here actually and it is interesting you know that that um, you know, obviously, Kane gets into the fact that some countries, say like Japan, for example, are more introverted mm, by culture. Yes. And, you know, when there t- there's tend, the way she depicts it as I kind of read it, there's a there is a kind of sense that cultures tend to go one way or the other, maybe a disproportionately emphasising mm, mm. more the yeah. more the introverted or more the extroverted side. But yeah, as you said, I mean, really. You know, it comes back to that point that there's certain kinds of activities associated with growth and meaning making and so on that um, you can't really get solitude completely out of the picture, you know, however sociable you might be. And as you said, even, you know, great friendships, a lot can be done in terms of developing ideas, of course, and so on. But yeah, they're just, there would seem to be, it would seem to be part of a healthy life in some sense you know that i just really inescapably
1: um well, bit, yes know. and I, and i can remember this this line from a peter hanke novel where um the husband says the wife uh, for us to be fully together we must be apart at times
0: mm. yeah
1: that's good. and that's that's kind of what we are talking about here yes uh, in the in that you know extroverts like anyone else want to bring substantial things to say to the table yep and to do that you've got to at times have solitude i'm not saying it's the only way to reflect or ponder, obviously Socrates thought that a good blather was a way <laughs> of uh, of finding out things. Right?
0: That's not quite the words he used, but I think I think no, yeah. we're Scottish. then we'll put it as a good blather. A good blather. I mean, yeah.
1: blether obviously makes it sound rather innocuous. The poor thing was put to death because of what you know. He was corrupting these people's minds as they saw it. Yes, so a blather doesn't typically do that. Well, <laughs> I'm no. just meaning you know that. He, he thought a good chat about the ideas was a way of uncovering the truth. And that there is a truth to that as well. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. I think that it's also good to emphasize that we're never actually alone, even internally, because, you know, as we're thinking something through, our thought process could be shaped by, well, what will so-and-so think about that? That is true. And yep. so even, even when we're in solitude, we're some we're still influenced and at times haunted by other people. I don't want to say we're haunted to the extent that Norman Bates is with his mother. <laughs> right? not, not ordinarily, uh, no. Not ordinarily. <laughs> but I think but I think part of the the interest of that movie is that Norman Bates's predicament is an exaggerated and very pathological form of our own inner critic. Yeah, and, that's you're you're right. I mean that
0: and, and you know that ties in actually with the second question we're going to come to, which maybe I can just kind of fit in and we can carry on with that. Excellent. Yeah, uh, yeah. Point. I just, yeah,
1: and, yeah. yeah. And what I would just say to uh finalise what we're saying here about uh the first question is that yeah, I I, I did feel reading the, the store book that intriguingly I thought, right, he's giving me permission to actually value my solitude more. And that was one of the nicest things about it. I didn't think I would feel that when reading the book because I thought I already, <clears throat> you know, understood and accepted and valued that solitude. But clearly I'd been shaped by some of those norms too. And so there was there was quite a therapeutic element to reading that book for me. I agree. You're right. It's nice to get such an eloquent defence of something that
0: feels uh, right, But but you're kind of aware that sometimes there's an almost implicit need to justify that, you know, too much quiet time might seem dull or, you know, that there's just these kind of, you know, lingering at times sense of cultural judgment for more solitary pus- pursuits as maybe being inferior in some ways to more sociable pursuits. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't yeah. want to. I definitely don't want to shut down the interesting point that you were making about um, the, about Norman Bates and inner critics. So, mm. just to mm. to come to that second uh, question, obviously, yeah. um, you know, store recounts in this book the lives of many creative types, writers, composers, mm. and so on, who mm. have you know for them solitude has been a vital part of their creative process. But in some cases, some have had a lot of emotional, psychological you know mental health type issues mm, um, mm, and there's been mm. a real variety there so i just wondered we we taken that solitude is important for creative types what would you see as the difference between say high quality solitude and that maybe which is detrimental obviously norman bates being really the the extreme case of detrimental <laughs> solitude i <laughs> um, mean I,
1: I think i think it, you know i don't want to push the norman bates issue too much i was just <laughs> making terms of that was a really, you know, extreme example of how we're, we're never fully alone. Yes, indeed. And our inner critic is a bit like our inner parent. With Norman Bates, it's taken to an extreme ex- extent. Yeah. But, um, yeah, in, t- in terms of that question between healthy and unhealthy solitude, maybe a profitable way of looking at it is to bring Hornay back, you know, um, yeah. that yeah. we covered earlier on. Uh, in a podcast, that um yep. because you know, as you know, she talks about the moving away person, yes, and that is someone that is reclusive. It's like a compulsive solitude, and and an unhealthy one. Yeah, and what she talks about with the the moving away kind of person, the reclusive person, that it's a negative freedom. So she says, you know, and I think this is a very key and profound point that it's about the freedom from but not the freedom to and so i what i understand by what she meant by that is that the person wants to be free of what they see as burdensome entanglements yes with others but then when they're on their own they don't do much right yeah um, because yep. they don't really have the freedom to do much they it just simply the freedom from so uh, you know this could be the kind of person that doesn't socialize but then doesn't do much with that solitude so i think one of the key differences between healthy solitude and unhealthy solitude is that do you feel liberated do you feel like you've then got time to do some meaningful things Or is it the case that you're simply feeling liberated from people and then you're somewhat wallowing and ruminating and not doing much constructive (laughs) on your own?
0: Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that that's an interesting one to the Karen Horn, I link there. I think you're right. Um obviously in in the store book, you know, he um mm-hmm. brings in the point that Winnicott had made, which I thought was really yes. interesting about the, the the you know, the attachment issue, you know, about the mm-hmm. maybe the, the what you're describing, a kind of a you know, a a moving away type has maybe had some kind of attachment, potentially. I mean, obviously we don't know why people can't say for sure why they'd be that tight, but you know th- mm, there could be that mm. sense that somebody with an insecure attachment therefore has or an ambivalent attachment actually I think would be more the label mm. there would be it would be people would be difficult whereas Winnicott suggests actually those with securest attachment you know as infants can mm. then actually enjoy solitude without the sense of of the of the fear, you know, with it's it's not as you said, they need to get away from something. They can they can almost feel like there's there's a good presence with them in the form of the kind of you exactly, know the, the securely yeah. attached parent figure that they can then almost be in solitude in in parental company in that way. Um if that
1: makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And of course that ties in with what we were just saying about never being fully alone because you know Winnicott was highlighting that an adult that has the capacity to be alone as taken in or interjected, as this same psychoanalysis, the good mother, yes. um, the mother that is able to be with them as they're uh, retreating within themselves, which then means that the, the adult can look within but still feel connected to the, the world at large. The world at large all is well or yes. well enough. And they can look within and get in touch with their authentic impulses, which is different to ruminating. Yeah. Um, because unhealthy solitude tends to be an excess of the cognitive, whereas what Winnicott was talking about was actually getting in touch with the uh, authentic impulses. You know, like, you know, well, I really want to listen to some music, or I really <laughs> want to watch this. But, you know, that kind of thing, that sense of aliveness. Um, yeah i mean yeah. it's it's almost
0: i think i think you're absolutely spot on it's an, sometimes it could almost be a kind of subtler difference as well you know because you're right i mean rumination obviously is the classic unhealthy so you know negative emotional state kind of activity that you could do mm. on your own on the other hand though if you were sitting say reflecting on on yourself or getting in touch with feelings that would be deeply productive you know there's that subtle difference there in a sense but it's it's like as you said it really does relate back to prior social experiences and maybe how we feel about other people you know whether those voices that are coming through when we're alone are the inner critic and self-hate and so on or whether that we're we're not really experiencing that and therefore we're a bit lighter you know and freer actually in our solitude to do these more creative enjoyable things I guess Um, yeah
1: exactly I think that when we're in that uh, unhealthy solitude we're feeling as an outsider yeah Uh, and I think that if we look at the need for coherence, that rumination is is an attempt, often uh, an unsuccessful attempt, to re-establish a coherence. But I think the difficulty is that when people uh, retreat from the world and see themselves in a very negative light, it's very hard to then re-establish a coherence where you believe that there's no place for you in the wider society and yeah. so that becomes a real issue whereas I think that um, the self reflecting that leads to you know as Storr speaks about a reintegration of the self and and that would also mean a reintegration of oneself and and the wider world to some extent. Exactly, yeah. Uh, Not to say that there isn't any tensions there between oneself and the world or within oneself, but it's trying to find some accommodation, at the very least, between oneself and the world, whereas the recluse or the moving away person is is someone that um, doesn't really believe that they could re-enter the world, productively and it's had to then retreat from yeah, it and, he, and will then tend to be lost in spirals of self-hate and self-criticism
0: yeah i think that i think you've really you've really captured it there alec i mean it's it's interesting isn't it? i mean i think you mentioned previously as well the idea of self-transcendence you know and mm. it's like really to have good solitude it has to be well, it has to have a number of elements, but one of them may be being interspersed, actually, with good company that's mm, that's mm. fulfilling in the right way such that the person doesn't get into this, I, I suppose you could say overly self-fixated trap, you know, in their rumination. Mm. They actually... Yeah because in a way in quality solitude you are yourself but you kind of want to lose yourself while you're there I guess you know it's a, you're, you're yeah. you know yeah. especially if it's say doing something creative you know it's a it's an, it's it's not it's the, it's the opposite of of rumination in that way it's really is a self transcendent feeling but yeah too much solitude actually maybe that would become hard to do you know it would be that sort of downward spiral
1: yes. s- scenario i would have thought yeah um, well i think the thing is that rumination as a as a style of thought is endlessly repetitive. Yeah. But it is an attempt for people to establish a coherence. It's a desperate attempt to establish a coherence when um they're either approaching it from the wrong angle or they don't have enough information okay. to actually solve the, the the issue. And so they they endlessly I mean the word rumination comes from the 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 idea of chewing the cow chewing the cud mm, yeah yeah so it's this idea of going over something repeatedly endlessly with no real result and actually it can end up being the very negation of thought you know a bit like if you chew something enough it just is obliterated and and so it doesn't really lead to insight yes but it but it could be but what it's predominantly focused on is a sense of control
0: okay yeah
1: Um, it's this idea that if i think about something long enough i'll come up with an answer and you could say that there's like too much faith placed in thinking alone yes with the world action uh whereas the person that is Having a uh, you know a healthy period of solitude as someone that is balancing reflection and action, yeah, um, in their lives.
0: I mean, what you're describing is slightly reminding me of our earlier conversation when we looked at Alan Watts's wisdom of insecurity. Mm. You know, the idea of being in the flow of life, mm. not getting caught up in security fixations, actually, and trying yeah. to, trying to perfect or control the, the environment of the. The body in that way, but actually um lo- losing that in a in a kind of more self- transcending
1: way. um
0: yeah, that's yes, that's exactly.
1: The- yeah, I mean the the thing is solitude could be part of being in that flow of life, but an unhealthy version of when we're ruminating is an attempt to control that flow, yeah um, to, to sort of uh, stop the river or divert it in a way that you can't necessarily do. Um yes. and, and that, that would be also I think like the there's an isolation to rumination, which is not necessarily there when you're reflecting in a healthy way on your own. Isola- you, yeah. Yeah.
0: No, sorry, go on, go on.
1: Yeah, I think with rumination there is an isolating element because it's almost like you know, one has to sort it out all oneself in one's head. So it's a bit like you feel detached from humanity at large and you alone have to do it. You have to solve it and you've got to solve it in your head. Well, where, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, whereas, you know, there's something, you know, one of the things I guess that, that you that is, you know, it's possible, I suppose, to forget really about when being in the flow of life is that there is just that felt sense of connectedness that that in a way um, is lost when somebody's Ooh. really lost in their thoughts and, and, and ruminating and therefore because they feel emotionally isolated or existentially isolated there's almost that need to like you said come up with a solution come up with control that in a way it's like a false dilemma that just disappears when they are when a person feels more connected to mm-hmm. life connected mm-hmm. to others and so on and um, so, yeah, it's like a subtle existential shift or or just a, a place that, that people could maybe get lost if they're moving away too much. Yes,
1: yeah. Um, Whereas, I mean, you know, what Winnicott was talking about with the the good enough mother, the mother that was uh, sitting with the baby in that state of reverie, is uh, that sense of still being connected to that outside world in a way and still being anchored by yeah. a sense of connection the world um, absolutely so it's yeah. quite different to the to the experiential feeling of rumination yeah
0: another um interesting angle i thought when you know thinking about the issue of high quality solitude versus detrimental solitude he, he obviously um Storr gives some examples of you know cases where people have been in imposed solitude solitary confinement and he obviously goes through you know what are the destructive elements of that? Which, of course, there are. But he then it was interesting. He comes to the case of various creative types like Dostoevsky mm. um, with his mm. periods of imprisonment, and then the likes of Beethoven with his the, the you know the isolation or that yeah. comes from his deaf, his deafness. And and in both mm-hmm. cases, I thought what was interesting was that when he was de- when we, he was talking about people who you could say were say creative with really strong inner resources, mm. they mm. actually may. When they were, when solitude of a sort was inflicted on them, it actually mm-hmm. caused less harm. You know, it was like the there was something about. You know, we taught like Dostoevsky. I think that I think for him he 'd been in solitary confinement and I think he actually did a lot of writing-in and mm-hmm. then, then he had a period where he was imprisoned and he was given absolutely no solitude mm-hmm. at all and that was actually much harder for him to deal with yes. you know because yeah he, so it was it was interesting you know reading about the, about these people whereby even in forced solitude not that that would be ideal for thriving but in a way it could be weathered more because of their you know they're kind of more creative yeah yeah uh, and i think
1: that's a good point and and i imagine it's just by accident that uh this has also been covered a bit in our shawshank podcast because yeah you know the the main character uh I, at one point i think he's asked by red you know how he managed to survive that enforced solitude and he says something like he took Mozart with him, mm, you yeah. know, and you know, in other words, that he's still in touch with um, what's most meaningful to him in his life, even in enforced solitude. Yeah. And when we talked about that movie, we obviously spoke about that the character was rather special in that he was still able to thrive in that circumstance of enforced solitude. Yeah. When we're looking at you know people like Dostoevsky that has got a great creative talent, then yes, it could be an opportunity to mm-hmm. um and, and I think we also have to take into account the the kind of material that Dostoevsky was writing. I mean if he had been a creative writer of um you know, more light comic fiction, say, and then he'd been putting in Forced Solitude, maybe that wouldn't have been so useful. For that. <laughs> for, for you for know, long. like, was the Alexander McCall Smith or something? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe, yes. could, maybe the guy could handle In Solitude. Or even if we think about somebody like Barbara Pym to stick to people we've covered so far, yep. I'm not sure that In Solitude would have helped for her writing her kind of material, as good as it was. Yeah. Um with Dostoevsky it was all about revelations of the spirit and about <laughs> adversities and and I could see like that in Forced Solitude could almost be like, you know, evoking it in some ways as well. Yeah. Um yeah, yeah. but yeah, I mean that that thing of um you know, that famous quote from from Wilde when he was in the jail, a kind of workhouse, and that he'd mm. said he had never been so busy but never been so idle. Mm, as well yeah, so, yeah. I mean that was a case of That there wasn't so much opportunity To undertake creative work For while. But yeah. then he did write De Profundis In there Yeah well yeah that's true and, um, yeah. Which had a more somber Tone than It wasn't so much prone to Irony as these uh, Other works um, yeah. So yeah I mean the, the thing is that I mean, creativity is obviously about the some state exploiting opportunities or or at least transforming the given. And a, a creative person may be able to take unfavorable circumstances and still use it for their benefit. Yes. Um, I think that Storr was obviously saying, or at least I read him as saying, that solitude is almost necessary for creative work. And proof of that is that even in adverse circumstances, people like Dostoevsky are still creative. Um, I think so. Yeah, I mean, he goes through a wide range of
0: personality types, which is interesting to read. But yeah, I mean, there was one quote I noted. He said, many creative people appear to nurture their talents more than they do their personal relationships. And I think he was, in a way, trying to say that while conventionally, They might be, you know, that might be seen as antisocial. There might be seen as, you know, too much a disproportionate, unbalanced emphasis on their solo creation. Maybe that was actually okay for for those those individuals. Maybe that was, you know, I mean, Kafka obviously is a is a tricky one because he, you know, obviously had such a kind of difficult you know, relationship with other people and, you know, and, and, and precarious mental health. Mm, mm, but, mm. I mean, it's hard to, when you're talking about somebody that's produced great creative works, it would be pretty difficult to then start being too, too critical of their, their choices, actually, when it came to how much they did or didn't socialise, you know, because it does obviously... Yeah, you know, that, that yeah. Form, I mean, I think that's
1: know, true. I think that's um, true. And and I think what Storr was saying is that... um we can't expect these people to be rounded or balanced in the ordinary way, because if they were, they probably would struggle to write what they they wrote. Yeah. And so there had to be some kind of um, creative imbalance in their lives uh, for them to produce what they did, and and that that uh, and that meant downplaying to some extent. More the social aspect of life for them. But I think what he was saying is that this is a viable way to be. It's not it's not without its problems, but then so is socializing in relationships. Absolutely. Um, so I yep. think he was saying um, he was saying that this is a viable way to be. I mean, if I could summarize overall what I think Storr did very well in this book, I think that what he he was was a brilliant defense lawyer for that <laughs> year life. Yeah. And he and he and he didn't do it in a contrived way, but you know, subtly and in a sustained way, he argued the case for that. And I think that's what you know what made it a very humane book, you know, to me.
0: I think I think that I think you are I think you're right about that. I mean he does because obviously we've discussed you know earlier on why the majority might benefit from solitude. And then he's obviously getting into these more special cases where, you know, again Mm. and again, Mm. he's finding compelling arguments actually in favor of why why the choice of solitude might not be a pathological one why it might be the better choice for that individual and uh, yeah I think I think he is he's a very good advocate of that um and, and he's always doing it of course in a in a, in a qualified way you know he's, he's highlighting yes, yeah. when yeah. it can go too far when it can destroy people and, and and also he's not he's not actually arguing against relationships at any point in the book he's very much saying that they could also you know of course that's part of a fulfilling and happy life Al- albeit again maybe with a caveat that for certain more creative types maybe they are just a less important aspect of their life that maybe is just how it how it is yeah, there pretty, pretty first, pretty, you know? yeah i mean um,
1: the, the, of course there are some writers that um I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, George uh, Simonon. I think that's not quite how you pronounce it, but you know, that wrote the May Green novels. Oh, uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. But you know, he um, he also wrote literary fiction and he was highly regarded in France. But I mean, he wrote a lot of books and um, he had a woman every night, Prattly. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, <okay. laughs> so the thing is that he, you know, he was. Um, quite adventurous in that regard, while also being this highly regarded writer. Yep. And, you know, we'll look at Camus as well that would have been introverted to some extent, but also was quite gregarious at times yes. too. Yep. So, I mean, you know, again, and of course Satra as well, I mean, the, there's that well-known story that when he flew over to Ireland to work on the screenplay of Moby Dick with John Houston, who was a... An introvert that uh, Houston found it very difficult because Sartre wouldn't shut up. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's so, interesting. Yeah. So the thing is, and Sartre <laughs> was the very definition of a writer, an intellectual. Yeah. But he was—he he liked to sit in cafes, and uh, I'm not going to use the word blather again, by the way. <laughs> I'm quite <laughs> okay. with discussion. You want to. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, <laughs> and it's interesting, isn't it, that,
0: you know, obviously, as you mentioned, there's no exit uh, yeah. play earlier. Yeah. Obviously, that, you yeah. know, he was evoking
1: that experience in uh, in Houston. Well, he was. Of and, and, uh, and, and of course, you know, you can see that these things aren't inconsistent because if somebody was, I mean, a J.D. Salinger is probably not going to be so much worried about hell being other people because he was rather, uh, well, he, you could say reclusive or he had his solitude. Where I don't know enough about his life. But, yeah. you know, he's not going to worry about that because that's not a threat, whereas Sartre would be been around people so much and like talking. Yes. You can see why he, he could actually, you know, that could be a version of hell because, you know, yeah it's something that you could slip into. It's true. Um, yeah, that's, that, yeah, you're, but, you're quite but, right. But, yeah. uh, you, know, the, the, you know, writers do vary in that regard, and, and artists a, a, as well. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, what Storr was doing was, um, yeah, Defending the legitimacy of that, and I think also in a wider sense, he was making the point that we've got to be careful about what we pathologise, and that even if something was not healthy in one respect, it could still be healthy in another sense. This is complex. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, I think think that's a a good summary of it there. Yeah, even... Even though we can accept that, you know, too much solitude obviously comes with can come with problems, and we've talked about moving away types and, and mm. so on, where, where that can go a bit wrong with rumination. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think there is that need to be a little bit cautious before rushing to judgments about solitude. But obviously, um, as we've said, that you know the kind of cultural say tendency towards extroversion and and, you know maybe value and extrovert type activities you know is something we do need to just maybe be a little bit wary of that we don't yeah we don't rush to these kind of judgments. I'm wondering, actually. I mean, our, our next question. Obviously, we've 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 talked a little bit about the fact that even you know the idea is solitude a little bit like exercise, and that everyone, even the most mm, extroverted, mm. should learn to value and cultivate it. And we've sort of you know seemed to have kind of agreed on that. That the the, the, the follow up there was, if so, why do you think some people find it hard to tolerate time alone? Um,
1: yeah. What's, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think. Um, I mean part of that could go back to what Winnicott was saying about the capacity to be alone. But yeah. some people might not have had that attachment or that, you know, that good enough mothering, as he put it. And therefore that, you know, when they're on their own, they feel isolated. That <sighs> okay. you know, they haven't really interjected or taken in that stable you know empathic presence yes. those that have achieved that so i mean that's how winnicott might see it um, yep. as to why that happens i don't i don't really know i mean it could be in part that they've maybe got a mother that is um this is something that Masud can talk more about more intrusive into the world okay. and therefore the 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 infant develops a false self as a way of accommodation. Okay, yeah. So, um, you know, what Winnicott and Masud Khan were writing about was this idea of impingements uh, on the baby's being. Yes. And that that's what leads to a false self. And, of course, if you develop that false self, you haven't really had that time to be yourself, <clears throat> which could mean that in later life when you're on your own, you feel alone. Yeah. And you feel isolated. So, I mean, that's one way of uh, looking at it. I mean, I think, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, a more prosaic thing, if I think about say my gran that that grew up in a a family environment where there were so many people around her, it was then hard for her to be on her own because she wasn't used to it. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, of course. You know that
1: some people might grow up in Environments where they're around big families, and and then they get married, and uh, they have children themselves, and so that is the norm, and they're not used to being on their own, having solitude. They might be scared of it, yeah, uh, in some ways. So I mean, the you know that's a, a prosaic sort of example, but. No, uh, I, I think yeah, I think these these are all
0: uh, reasonable cases. I mean, I, there was a there was one I noted down. I think a quote from Storr who said that. I think an extrovert may lose contact with their subjective needs by becoming overly involved with or losing themselves in their object. And I think there was another point he said, extreme extroversion leads to the individual losing his own identity in the press of people and events. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think, you, you know, you're describing obviously people who just maybe have never really experienced Solitude, actually, because of their family circumstances and so on. I could, I could imagine there might be, um, yeah, a a sense that it suddenly might seem quite scary. Actually, you know that they're so used to their identity just almost being blended with their social setting that um, the sudden removal of that, I guess, could be something that causes anxiety. Um, and I think your point about um, attachment definitely could be another um, another reason to explain that. You know, the idea of feeling. You know, that suddenly vulnerable, suddenly alone, suddenly at risk in terms of, you know, being in solitude. So, yeah, I suppose there would be various
1: situations like that that would make sense. Yes, Um, and I mean, and it might be that extroverts just innately find it more challenging, uh, just as introverts might find it innately more challenging being at a party. Yep. Which is not to say that it's bad for introverts occasionally to go to parties. Or, of course, yeah. Uh, likewise, it's not bad for extroverts to have some solitude at, at points. But, yeah, I mean, the Jungian idea of extroversion is that the the focus is on and the trust is in the external world. Yes. So the uh, you you know Jung believed that extroverts put their faith in the world and not so much in themselves. Where it's it's the other way around with introverts, which means that in some sense the introvert is almost like a latent paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you see what I mean? Yeah. In, yeah. And yeah. in, in uh, yeah. if, if your faith is put in your own perceptions. Uh, your own sense of what's going on, your own reading or interpretation of the world. You can see how under stress that could descend into more paranoia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, But yeah, you can see then that if your trust is in the world, fundamentally as an extrovert, that then, and of course the social world, that then when you're on your own, you're kind of out with your comfort zone, really. And it might be rather uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, And, of course, Storr isn't saying that that people have to like solitude equally. No. Just like how people don't necessarily like going to big group parties equally. Um, But I think he was just arguing that it was like a psychological vitamin for (laughs) introverts and extroverts. But I think extroverts might find it more... Uh, and and be more unsettled by being on their own in solitude.
0: Yeah, that's and you know, that is interesting. The the Union kind of take on these two was reminding me there in um in Susan Kane's book about introverts, mm. she she brings up the point, um, you know, because she she she's really taken to task the idea that she thinks that Western, particularly corporate world and education mm. and so on, overemphasizes the need for collaboration. She she has this chapter, I think, called When Collaboration Kills Creativity. And she mm. mentions about you know the famous Ash experiments, which which involved Get, you know, they had participants who were shown various pictures of different lengths of lines, and they were just asked to say mm. which, um, you know, which card showed mm. the, matched up with the one that we're seeing. You know, a kind of simple visual experiment, mm. but, but it highlighted that as soon as they were put in a group, with some plants who were deliberately choosing the wrong answer, mm. 75% of the participants apparently conformed and, and almost knowingly chose the wrong answer, but convinced mm. themselves that um, it was maybe the right answer because they were so socially influenced. You know, I thought mm. that, that, you mm. know, that is an interesting point about, um, you know, about the, the, you know, you were talking about the object, you know, the, the extrovert view that the object, yeah. the outer world is right versus the introverts, potentially more paranoid. Faith and, and self, yeah. you know, judgment. You know, obviously, when it comes, to, you can see why. When it comes to, I suppose, creativity or innovation in the workplace, too much collaboration could kind of kill that off. Actually, you know, with we have if we have that tendency yeah. towards conformity, actually, you know, in terms of what others seem to be thinking. So, yeah, it's it's well, yes, pitch.
1: yeah. I mean, the 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 thing is that um, a group talking together about a certain thing could potentially lead to more objectivity. Yep. Because people, you might have different biases that sort of somewhat iron themselves out um, through that collaboration. But alternatively, it may lead to a consensus and maybe even a delusional one. Yeah. Uh, And that's a threat as well. So, yes, again, we mustn't assume that groupthink is going to be more objective. On the other hand, we yep. mean to say that it's necessarily always going to be lacking in objectivity. It just depends on what how people discuss things and and also the pressure to to conform. I mean, in that situation you're describing, probably one of the reasons that people went with other people's perceptions is the fear of getting something wrong. Yes. Which is a very, which is a considerable fear that people have. Yeah. And if they get you know, say if the plants in that situation were um particularly forthright and confident yes. in their perception. I think they were, yes. If, yeah. if people were unsure it's like, oh well, these people probably are right, and I don't want to seem stupid. Yeah. As I'm saying this, I'm keenly aware that I'm going to be doing jury duty next month, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yes. I have to think about that group thing. Um, group
0: think. What you need to do is watch that film Twelve Angry Men before exactly, that to get in the right yeah, spirit. That great uh,
1: movie. Yes. Or indeed. I might just want to get out early and just not care. But uh, I'm not going to do it that way. <laughs> I've, I've watched Twelve Angry, angry Men and number of times and I I think I've absorbed the moral of that. But, yes, I would I would have thought so. Yeah, uh, so but if good. it goes on longer than a week. <laughs> but, um, so yes, yeah, I good. mean the, the thing is we can be taken out of ourselves and sometimes that's a criticism and sometimes that's a liberation. You know, because if if you're in a funk and you meet up with a good friend you can get taken out of your mood out of yourself. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Other times though it could be that um you know, uh, you're talking to someone that has no sensibility for what you're discussing, and then it can be quite a, an alienation from that part of oneself. That's true, um, yeah. So, yep. you know, if, you, if you're, if you say, philosophically minded and you're talking to someone that has no interest, or, and I don't mean no interest in terms of the subject, uh, directly, I just mean that style of thinking about life. If that that's not part of who they are, yeah, then of course you're, you know, you shouldn't then be continuing to talk about that because that's not going to be productive. But you can see how it could if that's reinforced enough, lead to an alienation from that part of oneself. Well,
0: yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I mean, it was a, a, another interesting angle, actually, that we've not quite mentioned yet that I thought Storr brought up, because he, he, we've, we've talked about the introverts and extroverts and so on. He, he mentions various other sort of ways of typing people. And there was one he talked about by some by Gardner. I can't remember the, m- much really about Gardner. Howard but he, Gardner, yeah. Howard Gardner, yeah. And he talked about the fact that when it comes to creativity, he, he was kind of splitting people into pa- patterners and dramatists, you know, and he, yes, it, yeah. it, you know, Storr says he, he felt this kind of correlated about, you know, the patterners being a bit more like introverted types who are looking for maybe mm-hmm. less relational more um you know maybe more something like abstract art or whatever whereas dramatists mm-hmm. maybe actually people oriented but but benefiting from solitude in order to create art about people you know and make sense of relational issues in that way i thought that you know that is also an interesting way that a say a sensitive extrovert might might um process actually some of the difficulties like you just suggested maybe where somebody doesn't doesn't respond to the kind of things they like to talk about or whatever else it might be you know they yeah Yeah. you know a refuge for them a way to work through things yeah, of
1: course, yeah, and, and I think that uh, dramatizers versus, pat, you know, patterners, uh, yeah. you know, is, is sort of like what I was saying with the Jungian idea of extroversion and introversion, because, yeah. you know, the the reason why an introvert is a sort of latent paranoid is that the pattern making that introverts do can obviously under stress become, you know, potentially paranoid. Yeah. Um, yeah, because that's what if you if you put your trust fundamentally in your reading of the world over the world itself, then the way you're going to feel confident or reasonably confident going about the world is by developing a map of yes, the world. So absolutely, that's how, you, that's how you feel confident, and that's why you've got to see patterns in the yeah. world. Whereas the an extrovert, you know, is is putting more of their trust in that world and almost like it will reveal itself to you as you explore it. It's more more exploratory in that way. Yeah. Uh but of course the thing is that you know, you've got dramatists that that were introverts that would be writing about the the social world, say if we take a case that we've covered before, Pinter. Yeah, uh, I'm course. sure he was an introvert or oh, yes. introverted enough. Yeah. And obviously his perceptions of human nature and the social world um were dramatized in his plays. Yes. Um and of course uh, the way he saw the world is not how an extrovert would 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 see uh I think the world uh, overall because he, he he fundamentally focused on uh the power and subject subjection aspect of human relations you know
0: it's a great point and i think yeah when you get somebody like that who maybe would fit say the the pattern or you know introvert you know way of being but yet they then express their world you know it can come up Mm. as something incredibly unique but 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 you know very very compelling you know because pinter you know certainly pinter conveys this uh this vibe in his Plays that you 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 know is very recognisable and distinctive, but at the same time, you know you can see his point sometimes. Actually, you know it's like it's not, oh, yes. not attached yeah, to that degree. You know, it's it's you can see what he's pointing at, even though there is a slight. Well, it's obviously from his very subjective view. It's it's interesting. Well, I
1: mean, it, it's it's obviously coming from someone that was very watchful. Yeah of the world uh but watchful to the point of uh an apprehensiveness now i remember years ago that i was having this discussion if i could put it that way with someone that was more ext- extrovert and uh and he was um quite dismissive you know about pinter's plays he said uh Yeah, I just think he was someone that was reclusive and needed to get out (laughs) more. And I remember actually at the time, uh, you know, being quite, you know, appalled by that judgment because it just seemed to be a callous dismissal. Yes. I mean, in terms of what we're discussing now, I can see that the guy, it's not as though he put it in a, a subtle way and it's maybe not even what he was overall meaning. But in terms of what we've been discussing, we can see there's an element of a point in as far as that someone introverted and apprehensive in some way about human relations may overstate that the case in which they're driven by power. Yes. And, and so we can see... We can see that in pinter C,
0: yeah,
1: um, which is not to say that he wasn't a genius and profound as well, but I think that that equally there's a truth that there was a um a sort of um well I'm trying to think about the right word, almost a sort of um hypochondria about human relations uh as well I, I, I absolutely but isn't it interesting
0: that him and you know say like kafka you know they both depicted this world that on the one hand is is you know almost like an exaggeration but yet it's given rise to these you know they've got their own their own words you know Kafkaesque, Pinteresque, and it's something yeah. that people get a waft of in certain situations and it really you know it helps them you know it gives them something to connect it to or it, it, so it kind of becomes meaningful so you know it would seem like if they hadn't created these very unique slightly paranoid worlds we would all be a bit less rich in a oh, way. Oh,
1: absolutely! Yeah, mm. I mean the the thing is that there weren't paranoid um, depictions that had no truth or point to yeah. them. And then I mean we have to also be fair that that Pinter wasn't a philosopher that was committed to, um, you know, f- you know, false, try to falsify his view with the opposite and you know, um, sort of shave off the more acute edges and so on. I mean, an artist, you know, has the right to portray the world as they see it. And uh, even if it's exaggerated in some way, that doesn't make it inferior art, actually. Certainly not. And, And I think also that sometimes heightening certain things allows us then to see them more as you were intimating. Yeah. in our everyday lives. Because the picturesque is so tangible in its plays, we can then see echoes of it or shadings of it in our everyday life. And that was the great virtue of it, I think. Yeah,
0: exactly. I mean, I suppose to compare it to something like painting, you know, where we think about some of the, you know, the real extremes in art that, that you know, the different movements and the different, uh, you know, I suppose very, very subjectivist depictions that, um I've gone far away from a realistic portrayal, but that, in a way, is what's great about them. You know that that, that we're actually getting this very unique, different kind of perspective. Actually, um, and and certainly with something like Pinter and Kafka, I, I, to me, yeah, it is, um yeah the exaggeration uh, and and if you could call it that, if that's quite the word, you know, is the strength actually there? You know, they've just they've, or the they've, heightening. You know, the height, yeah, exactly, the
1: heightening. Um, you know, really it's, they it's are. So But vivid. I think it's and, and it helps us to see it more in everyday life yeah. and it's maybe something a bit like what Wittgenstein spoke about with this phenomenon of seeing as because you know like we can look at a face, we can see a face and then someone might say oh they look like so and so so and so and then we see it as that person Yeah, and so nothing's actually changed physically in their face but we can start to look at their face in a different way because we're seeing it as analogous to yeah. somebody else's face and yep. I think it's the same that if you've got, say, like the you're aware of the Pinteresque or the Chekovian or the Kafkaesque, whatever, and then you're looking at your everyday life, you can you can see them as Pinteresque or Chekovian. You know, if there's some features of that in your life, it doesn't mean to say that that's exclusively how to see it. No, no, no. But it's it's one interesting and profitable way. Aesthetic way of looking at life. Um, clearly, the thing we Pinter, to Chekhov, Kafka, these geniuses, is that they had a very concentrated and pronounced and defined way of looking at life. And it was almost borrow the, their glasses or goggles to look at our own. Exactly. Borrow them,
0: but but yeah, I mean it would it would become an issue if you simply saw life in that way all the time. That but but as you said, it's enriched in to borrow yes. that perspective. Yeah, that's that's Well, like yes,
1: it. and I remember one writer had said about Pinter, you know, poor Harold, you know, he can only but write a Pinter play. <laughs> and I mean, that's, I mean, there's a, you know, it's obviously a funny comment, There's a certain truth to it. But I yep. mean, it's not as though that he was required to write it in any other way, but he just <laughs> gave us a way of understanding certain aspects. We can see everyday life as Pinterest we can see it as Chekhovy we yeah. can see it in an Ibsen way whatever, yep. you know um, and, and that uh, these are different ways of looking at it
0: So, I mean, we have a we have a final question. If if you if if you'd be happy to move on to, yes, to that one, yes. which is you know, I suppose bringing all this this up to date. Really, you know, um, obviously we're we're now in a world that is quite a. A busy noisy place we have mm. these devices around us you know that can um interrupt our lives at any moment even when alone in a quiet room so i'm wondering do, what to what extent do you think a lack of quality solitude is a factor in the array of mental health issues that um are so prevalent these days do you think there's a link there or uh,
1: Yeah, well, I mean, if if we look at the the Star book, uh, I don't think he necessarily puts it directly, but one of the implications of his book, if he's got a point, and I think we do believe he has a point, is that if you overemphasize the relational, it will impact your mental health. Um, Yeah, okay. So I think that we see that if we're always connected in some way to others through our mobiles or internet, Mm-hmm. And we're not getting that solitude, then it will impact adversely our mental health to some extent. You know, that it will have impact how much we can be in touch with our authentic selves. It will impact the degree in which we can be reflective and make sense of our lives, you know, that coherence as well. Um yeah. so I think if somebody's socializing a lot, there is a there is a Danger with that—that that they they could get impacted a number of ways by those uh, relationships, and yet not be able to make sense of it because they haven't quite taken the opportunity of solitude. And I think you can see that sometimes with clients that that's one of the reasons they come into therapy is that you know they want a chance to to make sense of their lives when you know it it seems as though they're rather dispersed. I I wonder. I mean, to me, um,
0: I, I think you know, modern technology might, in a way, give people kind of, to some extent, you know, the worst of of, of all worlds in terms of solitude versus company, because you could say. You know, on the one hand, people maybe, well, some people probably socialize less actually because, you know, say, think maybe younger people who are into things, maybe doing a lot of online gaming or, you know, mm. whatever it may be. Again, mm. I'm not mm. saying there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, there could be a scenario now where people are, some people are maybe having less time in company, yet in their solo time, they are continually through social media being exposed to social information, you know, that could kind of mm. provoke. Mm self-esteem concerns you know lead them to keeping feeling almost like they're being evaluated in relation to others but they're not having the almost like the grounding of of, of in-person experiences of others that could give a kind of no. more positive anchored sense of connection you know so i wondered if yeah. maybe some un- maybe out of kilter or balance of those two things is sometimes a bit of a problem for people
1: <laughs> i think um, it is and i mean you know in a way Social you know, if you're scrolling social media uh sitting on your own, there is yeah. almost like a Sartrean element, like no exit element there. Because it's yeah. like you're introducing that world into your solitude and you're still get you know, trying to be shaped by these norms and by these and try to live up to these images. And so there isn't much of an escape then. And and you're yeah. you're allowing you know, these uh, social media to imprint on uh, the very fabric of your being in those moments that you could actually have more productive solitude. Well, I wonder, I mean, we obviously talked earlier about the, the,
0: the problems of things like rumination and so on, and the fact that, I mean, in my in my view, an excessive kind of self-consciousness in terms of an mm. over- you know really dissecting of the self particularly in Mm. in comparison to others is is quite a toxic way to be as opposed to the more self-transcendence but yeah obviously a continuous stream of social media type information you know that can often have a bit of a people kind of putting a PR version of themselves across in an attempt maybe to 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 look good or whatever it may be. Um, Yeah, that really, I mean, that kind of continuous stream could be really quite toxic for people. And I thought obviously there's a lot written about, about the links between social media use and anxiety and depression and so on. So yeah, I thought it was just interesting to think about how that might feed into the point about solitude, because obviously it could actually be that You know, somebody who's really at risk of that is also having the maybe the wrong kind of solitude, as far as 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 we were trying to define it. Oh yes, I think
1: I think you make a good point about that. um, If people are scrolling through social media and they're self conscious, yeah, that that is um, that tends to be associated with uh, you know mental ill health. Um, So self focus is actually seen to be uh, connected to things like depression and anxiety. In a sense, when you're depressed or anxious, it's difficult to lose yourself in something uh, fulfilling because you're, you're focused on the perceived wrongness of who you are. Yep,
0: absolutely. And so, the,
1: so that kind of solitude would tend to lead to you know, recriminations and ruminations, you know, like why is my life not like my friends' on Facebook? Yeah. Um. And so, you, you know, you, you're kind of daunted and haunted by this um, image or this advert of someone else's life. Yeah. And uh, you might then think that you're not good enough for those friends are good enough to be in wider society. And so it becomes more an isolating experience. Um mm-hmm. and, and I think that we have to look at just the, the very practical point, which is that you know Starr was writing this book when um people would have had landlines but no mobiles and no internet. So you know like yeah. nowadays most people during you know during the day People tend to have their phone on, and yep. so that means that when you're sitting um you know say even if you're productively reflecting or listening to some music that you could get a text or a call any second um yep. so it is actually you might think well what that's no big deal, but actually, psychologists have done experiments that that show that uh people do not get immersed in their activities as much when the, their phones are nearby because the part of them is on call um yeah, and they have actually done some experiments with people that were sitting in cafes and you know at one group the phones were on the table and another group the phones were switched off and put away And they found that the people that put their phones away had deeper conversations. Hmm. Uh, The reason for that is that what's the point in opening up breakfast club style if a text comes through? Somebody (laughs) says, oh, wait a minute, sorry. Um, Oh, yeah, I've got to upload something to Instagram Uh, (laughs) or a notification.
0: I mean, it's a great point. I mean, obviously, star writing decades ago. I mean, it, it kind of made me smile at one point. I think he laments the fact that now cars have tape players in them and radios, and yeah, you know. They, I know. They, but I mean, I think yeah, what what' we're, I guess what you're saying I completely agree is that quality, either solitude actually or social experience has, I think you used the word immersive. You know, if we think about somebody yeah. alone in a in a positive sense, reading having a walk. Watching a really good play or film or whatever, in all cases, the, the experience is going to be detracted by a constantly pinging de- device. I mean, it's not, yes, that, I mean, obviously, I'm not Be you know, we use these phones, of course, you know,
1: messaging people. I mean, we're as guilty as anyone else. Yeah, but, without, without doubt. So, I mean, but, without but doubt, yeah. that's why we know why there's a, an issue there. Yeah. Um, that's you right. know, with that. And, and so, yeah, that thing about immersing yourself is so. Important and and this was something that the the psychologist George Pransky spoke about because he talks about the difference between investment versus involvement and mm. so he, he was making the point that the more ego invested you are in something the harder it is then to be involved in it. That's interesting. So, yeah. So the thing is that you know take the typical perfectionistic student you know, because they're so invested in what grade they would get, it's hard for them then to sit down and get lost in their thoughts and write the thing. Yeah, and, of course, And yeah. it's the same that if you're invested in, you know, your social media image, say, yeah. and and then you're sitting, maybe you want to get, trying to get immersed in something, but you get a notification, you get a ping. <laughs> yeah, um, no, it's, then, indeed. Then, you're, you know, it's like you're, conflicted between losing yourself in the activity or returning to something that you're invested in in a sort of uh <clears throat> you know self-focused kind of way yeah i mean it's quite diabolical actually you know that i mean obviously the, the way that you know
0: People might put a post up, and then, of course, human nature being such that we're wondering, well, is it being liked? Does it, you know? And, and, of course, there's again, there's been research done, isn't there, into into the impact on people's moods of you know the extent to which they're liked or not liked. But in, in either yeah. case, even if the post is getting lots of likes, as you suggested, it's really it's pulling the person back into a kind of self conscious ego mode rather than a self transcending. I'm forgetting well, myself I mean, and doing the something. Well Sorry. yeah, I mean, yeah. The,
1: the the you know, you you maybe take a picture, you upload it to Instagram or Facebook and you're wanting to you know, you're waiting on your likes because that's a bit like having made a joke to an audience and you're waiting to see if there's a laugh and how yeah. many laughs there's gonna be. Yeah. There's yeah. a profound sense of suspense yep. to that. That's and true. And of course, you have to wait. So it might be protracted for a few hours until you get your first like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Indeed. it's the question of how many likes and and have the people that should like it liked it? <laughs> or has there been some friends that haven't liked it? And why haven't they liked it? Is that a sign <laughs> I'm not close to them anymore? <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, it's a minefield, isn't it? Yeah. So you can see that, um, I mean, I think that that form of media is exploiting our need to feel to belong and our and our fear of being ostracized or not being as popular yeah and um they know that it that it's something that um that we can get fixated on and and so they exploit that fixation
0: yeah i mean you, you do have to try quite hard in terms of changing the settings of things to not get constant notifications you know it's it's really, it really it is geared is. up to as you say, exploit that, which that thing that we all have, which is, as you said, if if we tell a joke and it goes into silence, then nobody feels very good about that. That's just how we are. So, yeah. Well, yeah, but the is thing cool. is
1: that, but in this case, it's worse because it goes into a limbo. Yeah.
0: Yes, <laughs> and then it's
1: right. like, will there be a laugh, metaphorically <laughs> speaking? Will there be a like? Yeah. And how many likes? And um yeah the, the people that liked it before like will like it now. I mean or or have they gone off me or you know and, and so on. And of course you end up worrying about a lot of people that you wouldn't even say hi to on the street. Yes, that's right. But it's not it's not it's a bit like um these people that are called your friends on Facebook are really like your audience. So yeah, um I I, I imagine a stand-up performer is not necessarily caring uh completely how the the audience sees them over and beyond them laughing yeah really sure um but it's that kind of protracted period of finding out what your fate is and it's well <laughs> um, and it's and a
0: bit again I, i'm thinking of sartre's no exit you know it's it's eternal whereas obviously the stand-up can step off the stage and think about something else but it's, it's well, 24 yes, hours yeah. a day. It never ends in, in terms of that. You know, any any times, particularly when a piece of material has been put up on social media, which, of course, it's protracted. It could be in different time zones. You're getting reactions at different times. And then you put something else up. You know, I mean, you can see why. And, of course, the culture of of posting. You know, I mean, it could be that mm, a person mm. starts to think they're looking bad if they're not posting a certain amount. You know, so really, I mean, it, it's very Tricky one for people to really navigate, and well, it is, you know, and 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 um, I
1: think it's also um, encouraging yeah. people to define themselves more by what is seen, yeah. rather than more by the visual. Yep, and this is something that Neil Postman wrote about in in that book Age of Subdity back in the eighties about oh, yeah. how TV TV would shape politics. Yeah, and you know what he uh, prophesies has all come true about yeah. that and and I think so there's a there's a monopolization of the visual we've defined ourselves more by that we're going to define ourselves more by what is going to be sound bites like rather than yeah um, so, you know a more nuanced and considered version of ourselves, and again, we start to lose faith in you know who's wanting to hear that anyway, so well, you, well, yeah, you know we I'm we trying. become like um. We become like people that have to be a pitch to uh, uh, a a nineteen eighties Hollywood cokehead producer. <laughs> you know, that yeah. have, a very short term attention span, and we've got to hook them. It better be good, or you're out the door. It better yeah. be good, otherwise yeah. they're they're on to somebody else, and so yeah, you know, and you can yeah. see then that when you you lose faith in people's interest. That then, when you're feeling really down, you feel particularly isolated because yeah. you know that that's not marketable material. It's not and marketable. So and yeah. in, in your dejection, you come to a therapist that you know will listen to that material. You're but, right. You know, in the wider world, yeah, they don't. They don't generally.
0: It, it, exactly, and it is for somebody who say their online life is a particularly important part of their social life. You know, it could be that. Yeah, reaching out to connect is difficult there because it's it can't always be easily separated from the sense of how am I being seen or how or am yeah. I you know I, as you say I suppose if someone's particularly down you know the idea of being seen is all the harder at that point so well, yeah is. It, 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 do, you know. I
1: mean it, it actually exacerbates a shame yeah there almost like well I've got I haven't really got the personality at the moment to project myself yeah because I'm I'm not you know i'm not myself i'm feeling down or i feel really anxious and so uh it, it they, they can feel like well people might not want to be around me yeah yeah and, and, and i mean i know that it was a, a you know a joke but you know like in a rab Nesbitt episode uh, James E. Cotter says to rab he says i, I know that your son's on a life support machine, but don't come, come with a tripping face to the pub. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And and, and and I mean, I know that that, I mean, you know, Ian Patterson, a great writer, it's brutal comedy, but there is a truth there. I'm not yeah. saying that most people would be sympathetic to some extent, but right. that's not what Patterson was meaning. He was nope. meaning that, yeah, that these sort of venues, these sort of things with your friends, they're not really for sharing your adversities with.
0: <sighs> no that this is a you're quite right um it, it, inevitably that's a that's a ve- i mean sometimes people maybe who do post something you know maybe they will get quite you know if it's say about a mental health yeah. struggle having, they may get, you know you know consoling responses but it's it's a risky thing to do and of course what if they don't you know i mean they could feel really really bad it's um, very it's not yes it's not
1: and and as bizarre. you see how people respond and who responds can make a, a big difference. Really. Yeah. yeah, um, But it's not probably the best vehicle for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's like, you know, that unwritten social contract that a lot of people feel, which is that, you know, you don't really share your pain too much. Um, that's yeah. for therapy and recovery groups.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, I mean, obviously we talked earlier about, yeah, these implicit... Cultural say biases towards extroversion and so on, but yeah, maybe in the the modern world, yeah, th- these kind of implicit assumptions are maybe more toxic, more, and maybe more prevalent. Actually, maybe that's more relevant to where we are now. Um, and yeah, very, um, yeah, very, very damaging, you know, to people's mental health. That, that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah,
1: yeah, and um, I think that we should contrast that with, uh, you know, Stor's humanism, which was saying that you shouldn't make your life answerable to anyone else. I mean, that's one of the things about the the value solitude, and it's one of the harmful things about social media, in that yeah. you end up putting yourself worth on the market and, yeah. and, and making it answerable to other people, which is, uh, I, I mean, as I say, I could understand why people do it, but it is something that... Um, you know, is very toxic, very corrosive. You're
0: right. I mean, I guess, yeah, coming back to the point, you know, the, the the fundamental point about healthy, productive solitude, you know, what what I suppose what a lot of it boils down to is it, it should be a place that you can get more and more and more in touch with your own values and feel good about that process and thus feel good about yourself. But, yeah, obviously you don't want those values to be constantly getting Affected by social judgment, but permeated by norms and uh, you know and, and other kind of maybe even insidious assumptions. You know that is that is so detrimental actually to healthy solitude. That kind of uh, environment, unfortunately.
1: Um, yes, and and I mean you know I think also the the point is that even if people are seeing you mainly how you are, that that can become potentially rigid in some ways and that you can end up um living a role that was at once more authentic identity and that's why maybe you need to take time to to regroup and reconnect with yourself and then maybe also update your friends in a way. <laughs> update. I thought you were going to say update your Facebook page <laughs> 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 I thought that's really not the angle. But I don't have a Facebook page that's probably quite obvious by now <laughs> um, and Up- I, know yes, that the, yes. I know that cynics are going to just say well this is because of the response they've got to their, their, their uh podcast social media <laughs> That's there's always there, a um, cynical reading possible the, yes. yes but I think that that would not be a you know, a charitable and realistic <laughs> reading
0: I, I I would say so. I would say that would be very unfair, yes. But if people are willing to think that fair enough <laughs> <laughs> <Indeed>. um, <laughs> well, I, I think we really have kind of uh, filled the time slot there on, on that one, Alec. But that, um, yeah, it's been really good talking about all the different elements of solitude. I think we've, we've covered quite a lot okay. of ground there with that one. So, um, yes, so yeah, well, and, thank and, you. And
1: then, so you're going to ask about we off to have some solitude. <laughs>
0: Yes, um, uh,
1: I, I, I could, uh, I could do that, but no, I
0: thought. I or is it? You, is, he's
1: going away to, to retreat and see the resentment over something, <laughs> <laughs> and he's going to write a um, scathing I post on Twitter about
0: it. that was great. Okay. Yes, that's great.
1: Well, thank you, thank you, thank you.
0: Okay.